Welcome to the Huntsback Country Podcast. This is a Monday Minute episode, which are normally shorter and more informal episodes where we answer your listener questions. Today, though, we're changing things up a bit. Steve and myself are joined by Corey Jacobson to talk about a new video series that he has going on this summer. And it's not just a hunting film. It's not a hunting video. It is a very educational piece of content for anyone who wants to hunt elk and do it more effectively this fall. This series is called In the Zone. There's going to be six episodes releasing. The first one has come out, and we're talking about that episode and that elk hunting scenario and encounter today in this podcast. And then the second episode is actually releasing tomorrow. So there are links in the show description where you can head over and get these two episodes, one that's already out, one releasing tomorrow as of the time of this podcast release. And then there's going to be a new episode every other week for the rest of the summer here in 2023. So each of these episodes is going to cover a real elk hunt and an elk hunting scenario. And after the fact, Corey kind of goes back and uses visuals and graphics to talk about the encounter and the setup and what went right and what they did wrong. And it's a really cool, helpful series to really not just watch a hunt, but actually have the benefit of going back in time, taking some footage, breaking it apart, walking through the scenario, showing some diagrams and things like that, and really deconstructing this elk hunt. So again, hope you guys enjoy this one. This conversation with Corey, again, breaks down the first episode. Steve and I had some questions about different scenarios and things like that based on the first episode. So one possibility is either before you listen to this conversation or after, make sure and go watch the first episode of In the Zone with Corey. Again, that link is in the show description. And then while you're there, be sure to hit subscribe on the Elk 101 YouTube channel so that you get all those future episodes automatically for free. Here's this conversation with Corey Jacobson. Well, Corey, I'm excited to chat with you today um, and get into this new video series that should be, man, just perfect for our audience. Guys love to hear about elk hunting, archery elk hunting, and I'm excited because with our podcast, we always try to provide helpful information that is practical. And that's exactly what you're doing in this video series, but you have the aid of visuals, not just audio. So um, before we dive into like the this episode, we're going to break down one of the scenarios of this series. Just tell us about like what was the original idea for this series of videos that you do? And then when did it start? Yeah, no, I mean, we everything we've done has been, you know, focused around education. And so sharing, you know, more than just the the adventure and the entertainment side of the hunt, we always try to share educational aspects that'll hopefully help people, you know, achieve more success. And so we always get hit up, especially on like our destination elk series where we're out hunting day to day. And we're, you know, we try to do a good job of explaining what we're doing and sharing tips and tactics, but we always get comments after the series of, I wish you could just go back and break down exactly what you're doing. What were you thinking? What call did you use? You know, where was the elk at? And like you said, rather than just talk through it and explain it, which, you know, when we're videoing the hunt, it's, uh, I mean, it's a good perspective. It's a good point of view from right over the shoulder of the hunter, but 
you know, we're hunting usually in timber and, and we're hunting in areas where you can't get a good feel for the layout of what's going on. Is the bull over a ridge? Is he in a draw? Is he across the hillside? Is he above us? Is he below us? And so what we've done with the in the zone series in, and we've been doing it for a few years, you know, we usually do two or three videos a year, just our best videos from the previous season and, and break them down. And the way we've done it is, you know, we'll take like a, a screenshot from Google Earth of the exact area where we were, and then we'll have a little 2D, you know, cut out of an elk and a little 2D cut out of a hunter. And we'll kind of, you know, put them, this is where the elk was on the, on the 3D screenshot of Google Earth. This is where the hunter was. And it, I mean, it really, it's, it's helpful. We talk through, you know, the bulls here on this bench or on this ridge and we're down below and we show where the thermals are coming down and really just break down that setup and, you know, talk about everything we did, why the elk did what he did, why we did what we did. And it's been, you know, really, really well received. And so for this year, uh, we just launched the, the first episode, but we, uh, I wanted to make it just as high quality as, as we possibly could. So we actually hired a 3D animator to create a 3D uh, motion graphic of an elk. So it's a, it's a big six-point bull elk. Uh, he turns, he walks, he stops, everything. And then uh, you'd have to see, I should post a, a picture of our setup, but we actually did a, a blue screen instead of a green screen. Cause when you were camouflage green screen doesn't work real good, but <laughs> we did a, a blue screen behind a treadmill and I put on my pack and, and hiked on the treadmill in front of a blue screen and filmed it. And so we've got, you know, 3d model of an elk, 3d model of a hunter, uh, 3d model of a, a shooter and a caller. And we're using that on really high detailed 3D imagery to basically create a, a 3D motion graphic of the setup. So you're able to see really clearly, you know, are we set up in a patch of timber and the bull out, is he out on an open hillside? Uh, is he in timber and we're out on an open hillside? Is he above us? Is he below us? Uh, just really showing every detail of the setup from kind of a bird's eye view uh, rather than from over the shoulder. So for a, for an elk hunter watching it, it's going to be highly educational. Uh, we're going to break down everything we can about these different situations. And, and I mean, we're, we're kind of stuck with the hunt that we have, uh, but we're going to pull out nuggets from that, that actual hunt. So we'll mix it with footage from the hunt with voiceover explaining uh, with the 3D modeling, showing the graphics and and really illustrating what uh, what we were seeing there. So the the first episode is out. The second episode of this year, this season is actually coming out tomorrow, as of the time this podcast is released. And we'll have links to the first episode and then a link just directly to the channel to make sure that folks can hit subscribe and get this episode that's coming tomorrow. And then you have, what, four more total kind of releasing all through the summer, basically right up to the start of um, archery elk season, really, right? Yeah, so we'll have six total episodes this summer, which is, I think, twice as many as we've ever, you know, as we've ever done in a summer. Uh, and yeah, they'll be every two weeks on a, on a Tuesday throughout the summer, right up till the end of August. 
So today, uh, Steve and I both watched the first episode kind of separately and took notes and questions and we just wanted to chat through um, some of our takeaways from from watching this first one. But before we dive into that, can you just, uh, Corey, set the stage for like what this hunt was, time of year? I mean, you cover it in the video, but just so listeners who haven't seen it yet for our discussion today can just kind of understand this uh, particular hunt we're going to break down a little bit. Yeah, so it's uh, it's actually Donnie and I. Donnie's the shooter. I'm doing the calling on this hunt, and it's a brand new area. We've never never hunted there before. We did go over before season and set some trail cameras out, and we're back uh, on this day. It's the first day of the hunt. It is sometime mid September. I don't remember the exact date. Maybe you know the seventeenth, somewhere in there. And uh, we're pretty excited. New area, lots of animals on the trail cameras, but we uh, we end up hiking until four o'clock in the afternoon, pretty much nonstop, and don't have a single bugle. So haven't seen an elk, <laughs> haven't heard a bugle. Uh, there's a lot of other details in there that you know we come to find out we're actually camped about 200 yards from an outfitter's camp that we had no idea was in there. Uh, they've been hunting it all season, and so they've kind of pushed the elk around and shot a few elk out of there, but all of the trail camera footage and everything, the elk kind of disappeared after about the 7th of September. So we've made our way through uh, the entire drainage, basically, and we're up at the head end of a canyon. It's uh, afternoon, probably four o'clock, maybe 4.30. Uh, the afternoon wind's picking up and I let out a bugle and we we hear something, but we don't know what it is. Uh, so that kind of sets us up as we haven't heard anything all day. We we hear something. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna stick around to investigate because it's our only prospect. So that's kind of where the the episode starts is us letting out that bugle, hearing the response, and then deciding to move up the hill to to set up and see if it really was an elk. So did you find out? Look back up to you know you're, you're hunting all day uh, and you're not hearing seeing anything. Were you, did you believe there was elk in the area? Were you seeing sign? Was it just void of sign? Or did you run into the outfitter at some point midday and you already kind of knew, oh, this isn't looking good? No, we uh, we had three trail cameras, I think, that we checked uh, during the day. So as we're hiking, we're going from trail camera to trail camera. And they're all telling kind of the same story. A pile of elk, big bulls, some really nice bulls that were there. Uh, mid-August through that first week of September. And then after that, nothing on the trail cameras, like complete ghost town. Uh, and so there there was sign, you know, there were rubs from that first week, there were tracks from that first week, but there was nothing fresh. And so we were probably 10 or 12 days late getting into there. And at that point, we didn't know. In fact, we didn't know... Um, I think it was two days later before we knew we were camped right on top of an outfitter's camp. Um, just because, I mean, we're, we're leaving before daylight. We're coming back after dark. Uh, they're kind of doing the same, but it was, uh, turns out, you know, we didn't know until after the season, but it was a drop camp that uh, outfitters were coming and going and dropping people off. And that's how we actually, we, we passed them on the trail uh, coming in with a load of, of stuff for the hunters. So, uh, you know, we, we were definitely confused about where the elk were and why they weren't there but you know that transition that first week of september the bulls will be up higher early 
And it's not uncommon for them to completely leave an area and go looking for cows about that same time. And so I think it was a combination of, of them leaving, you know, their summer ground and going to look for cows and what few elk, you know, or whatever elk were left in there had gotten pressure for the last two or three weeks. How are you, it's a probably a, it's a really simple, basic question, but I think probably a lot of hunters, you know, they come from Midwest and go out on an elk hunt and they're, they're seeing that sign. What are you using to determine if it's fresh or not rubs and tracks? I mean, just purely, you know, do you have any tips there of, for guys to analyze like, you know, cause I would think if you're new to elk hunting, you're like, I'm seeing tracks everywhere, right? Like, why are the elk not here? And you, you don't, they stay in that location for too long, right? Cause they are seeing quote unquote sign. Um, but not realizing that the elk are, you know, five miles further down the drainage. Yeah, no. And that's, you know, that's always the hard part is, especially in September, it's usually dry. So it's not like you're getting a lot of rain and you're able to say there's a track here in the mud that is super fresh. So, you know, when, when we're looking in dirt at tracks, you can usually tell if something's been made within the last day or two, you know, the dust is super fresh in the, in the track uh, or if it's been sitting there a while, it's kind of settled down and, and the dirt around it's dispersed a bit. So should be able to tell, you know, if you're seeing tracks, if they're like from that day or the day before, or if they're a little older. And I like, you know, I want to find tracks that are from that day or the day before, even if they're three or four days old, uh, the elk haven't been right there. And so I've got to, I've got to go and find them. But rubs, you know, we were able to tell, man, there's rubs everywhere in here. It's where the bulls shed their velvet. Uh, it's where they started, you know, rubbing and raking early, but you could tell the sap was kind of beaded up on the trees. The bark that they had peeled off when they were raking was getting dry and brittle. You know, the the bark that's at the base of the tree, you could pick it up and it's crunchy rather than a soft, pliable bark, you know, that if it was fresh, you could pick it up and bend it and it wouldn't crack and crumble in your hands. So that's a good indication. And then of course they're, their uh, poop is, you can tell if it's green and steamy and fresh, or if it's a little bit more firm. And once it starts firming up, you know, it's at least a couple days old. So it, uh, you know, we weren't jumping anything. We weren't seeing fresh sign. We could tell they had been there, but they hadn't been there in the previous week or two. When you're talking about the rubs, I wonder where you know, it's typically a little pine tree, right? And then they break off little limbs with pine needles on it. I wonder how fast those change color to brown does that take a week a month it, it takes at least a week you know you'll see okay. green branches laying on the ground even after a week or two but they'll you can tell that they've lost the moisture if you pick them up you can break off a couple of the needles and be like man this is really dry and if it was still alive you know it's really moist and pliable uh, so I'd say if you're picking it up and it's snapping easy, if the if the needles or the the limbs are really dry and and easy to break, then it's probably at least a week or two old. So in the video, you say, um, "All right, you've been you're hunting this area, not seeing elk. It's time to go on a death march." <laughs> what did you did you have this plan B in place already? Or was it like, uh, we wouldn't expect this. Let's stare at the maps. You know, basically, how did you determine where you're going to plan B? Yeah, this is all uh, motorized area. So we're on foot. So we had, we picked our camp location based on 
knowing that we may have to branch out and hit three or four different drainages from one location. So we'd set camp kind of at the, the mouth of three different drainages and figured that, you know, we had trail cameras in each drainage. We'd probably be able to get into some good elk hunting in one of them. So we hit the first one that we felt had the, the most likelihood of, of good elk based on what we saw from summer sign and sign of previous rut and everything when we were scouting in the summer and that's one that you know ended up with no sign in it so we actually hiked all the way around the top end of that drainage all the way through the basin at the head end and hit the big ridge that kind of separated that drainage from the next one and we're getting ready to drop into the next drainage so we had plan B, C, D of, okay, if they aren't in this drainage, we're going over to this one. If they aren't here, we'll climb over the ridge into this one. And if they aren't there, then we'll pack out and relocate completely. And so we were uh, basically, you know, kind of like trolling for fish. You know, you kind of mm-hmm. go around the, the edge of the lake or whatever, and you, you hit all the little points and all the little bays in there. And if there's nothing there, you, you've got to go to a different area but that's what we were doing is just going through and bugling letting out bugle after bugle and then you know we're we're hoping to get a response but at the same time we're not seeing signs so the chance of getting a a response is pretty low just based on the sign we're seeing yeah so you're you had basically pre-planned abcd spots and placed your camp so that it was um you know made sense to be able to hunt all those different locations you weren't committed to that first drainage and then throwing everything out the window it was it was already a very natural transition to okay they're not here we know we're going to this spot next yep absolutely and and with you know the way that we hunt where we start low in the morning climb up a ridge get up on you know on kind of the top of the drainage just to to play the thermals it worked perfect you know we started low we hiked up the right hand side of the drainage we circled around the basin up high we got up on the main ridge between the two drainages and thermals were coming up so we had good thermals for either side of that ridge if we got a response yeah there's there's so much in there just in terms of like efficiency and strategy and it can be really simple but until you do the forethought to go this is how we can cover terrain and like what you just said Corey, about like thermals and time of day this is the most effective way to do it to put us in the best spot um that yeah (laughs) it it sounds simple when you've put the plan together, but if it's an oversight, I mean, it can change everything in terms of your hunting efficiency. Oh yeah. I mean, if we're, if we're camped there and we want to go back to camp during the middle of the day, it makes it impossible to reach the upper ends of these drainages. So, I mean, we can't just, uh, I think a lot of hunters do. They're like, I'm going to go for a morning hunt. If I don't see sign, I'll go back to camp and regroup and they go back and then they're stuck to just a couple hours of hike from camp there and they spend a whole week just branching out that maybe two three miles from camp and then they go back and then they go up another ridge and then they go back and you can do that and you can spend a week and hit every little nook and cranny in there but uh, it, it like you said it's not efficient and for us we we if we aren't getting bugles we're covering country and I think our, our plan and the routes and the, the backup plans that we have uh, take advantage of that. And I think we did, I want to say we hiked 13 or 14 miles that day by the time we packed the elk back down to camp uh, and it was late at night. I might've 
gave a spoiler there, but <laughs> <laughs> there, there was success on this hunt. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, we just, I, I had somebody, you know, and social media is great, but people are, uh, they're quick to, to say things they probably wouldn't say in person, but I had a, somebody had just said, you know, Corey's a great caller and somebody else replied and said, I don't think he's that great at all. He, his only strategy is hike a ton of miles and find the easiest elk to call in. And I'm like, well, that might not be understood exactly as I meant for it to be understood that yes, we hike a lot of miles and we're looking for an elk that is in the, the right attitude to call in, but we aren't going to hike a bunch of miles if we have elk bugling a half mile from camp. So, yeah. you know, we, we definitely apply calling strategy, but our strategy for finding elk definitely involves a lot of hiking sometimes. One of my questions was what time of year this was. And uh, when I watched the video, I wrote that question down and, and then would your strategy change if it was obviously, so you're like, you know, second half of September here, you're expecting very vocal elk. If this is the first week of September and it's hot afternoon, are you still applying? Do you, do you change up the strategy at all? You know, not really. And it is, it's, you know, like I said, I think we were September 17th. So like you mentioned, we should be hearing elk bugle. If there were elk anywhere in that Canyon, we should have heard a bugle at daylight. It's uh, mm. it's getting cool in the morning. It's a clear day. Uh, it's just, you know, a big country where you can hear bugles from a long way. We, we've got glass. And so we did spot an elk at daylight that morning, clear across on the opposite side of the second drainage. So it was a long ways away. The elk was way up high on the ridge line. It was a bull and it just moved into the timber as soon as it got daylight. So um, we, we knew we could work that way. And there was at least one bull up there but he wasn't bugling. He could hear our bugles, um, but wouldn't respond to them. So then you start thinking, okay, something, something's going on. There's pressure in here. There's a pack of wolves. There's an outfitter's camp. There's a reason on September 17th, if an elk's not bugling. And, uh, you know, I think our strategy is to find an elk that's bugling. And if that means hiking 10 or 12 miles, then we hike 10 or 12 miles and we aren't just blindly hiking. We know where the North faces are, where they should be bedded during the middle of the day. We know where the water sources and feed sources are just from scouting or e-scouting. So it's not like we're just saying, oh, let's just take off hiking cross country across here and hope we bump into an elk. We're strategically, you know, we're looking at our, our uh, mobile mapping and saying, okay, we've got this ridge up here. There's a North face over there that we've identified previously. Let's, let's hike up around this basin and get up on the rim and bugle down into that area. So there's, there's specific geographical strategy uh, involved, but the the main tactic is cover country and find elk. Yeah. One note I jotted down from watching this episode, and I have a lot more information now on really how much this is even more true because we've talked about more details than the episode shows, but I just jotted down, you know, persistence creates opportunities because I was looking at you guys and in the video you know you talk about elk have been quiet it was a windy day so it's hard to hear bugles you're late into the afternoon you know it's kind of hot it's kind of the non-prime hours but that's when because of your persistence throughout all those things that aren't good that's when you actually were able to get on an elk 
And that, I mean, it's just a lesson I just learn over and over and over again. It's like, even when you're reading the sign or not seeing the sign or things aren't looking ideal, like you just have to stay persistent because that's what in the end is, if there's going to be an opportunity, it's going to happen because you're persistent. Totally. Yep. No, and that's, you know, it goes back to the staying out all day and hunting and we don't just sit under a tree. I mean, sometimes you do, but if we're trying to find elk, especially on the first day, it's pretty rare that on day one of a hunt, if we aren't getting into elk that I'm posted up under a tree, taking a nap and, and eating lunch, you know, we keep moving. And had we been going back to camp during the middle of the day, we could have never reached the point where we found this elk. It was too far. Like I said, we hiked nonstop and we could have taken a much more direct approach to get to that spot, but it was still several, several hours of hiking to get up there. As it was, we left camp at, you know, 545 or something that morning. And we made it to this point at about four in the afternoon and we really hadn't stopped. So we're several miles into the hike and finally found the first elk of the hunt and it took a lot of miles and a lot of hours and he wasn't fired up you know like I said we didn't even couldn't even recognize it as a bugle it sounded more like a donkey brain and he was bedded down he was a younger bull uh, he'd probably been pressured for a couple of weeks and so it wasn't like he gave out this full bugle We're like all right it's game on we just heard a noise and thought that could have been an elk so let's let's uh, err on the side of caution and go set up just in case it was so describe the setup a little bit in terms of positioning and kind of the context. Yeah. So we're, uh, and that's where the, you know, the 3d modeling and the motion graphics really gets helpful. Uh, I can, I can explain it audibly or audibly and you can get a picture in your mind, but we, uh, we, we hiked up onto the main ridge and there's a little bit of a saddle there and a big open kind of sagebrush and grass hillside that fed down off of the ridge into the drainage below us that we hadn't been into yet. And as we're looking down into that drainage on our right hand side, there's a little draw, uh, no water in it or anything, but there's quite a bit of timber, especially on the far side of that, which ended up being the, the north facing side there. So we had come through the saddle and we dropped down probably 100 or 150 yards on that open ridge going down towards the, the bottom of the next drainage and bugled. And we thought we had heard the response come from somewhere across the little draw to our right uh, that had all the timber on it. So the wind, the thermals are coming uphill, but again, it's gusting, so it's swirling a bit. And I didn't want to stand right out there on the wide open hillside and continue bugling uh, if the bull happened to, you know, be at a, in just a little opening across the draw from us, if we're out on the open hillside and he takes three or four steps and gets to that opening, he's going to see us. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if we got back up into the timber, I was hoping the wind would be a little bit more calm. So we moved back up into the saddle on the main ridge and then skirted kind of across at that level into the, the edge of the timber, moving towards where we thought the sound had come from. One random note I had is when you hear, do you have any tips, tools that you use for when you hear a bugle or a sound on determining the distance? I think it's a mistake I've made very often is like, oh, that, that elk's 300 yards away and he's only a hundred or, you know, like, I, do you have anything? I mean, obviously it's like, how thick is the canopy? You know, cause that really muffles the sound. Is there, is it a straight shot? Is there a hill? 
but do you have any kind of, or do you have a default, like always just assume he's closer than you think, or do you always assume he's further than you think? What's your process there for analyzing once you've heard a response? Yeah, it's like you said, it's tough. And I think some of it comes with experience. Uh, you know, you hunt the same kind of areas, you kind of get used to judging, but it takes, you know, messing up. You've got to bump a bowl to realize, oh, he was closer than I thought. And then, you know, it takes setting up too far away and not being able to call the bowl in and realizing, eh, he was, must have been 300 yards instead of 150 yards. But if you're in thick stuff like the you know, we were talking about Roosevelt hunting before we started the podcast. And so if you're on the, the West Coast, it's so thick and there's so much vegetation there that an elk will sound like it's 300 yards away and it might only be 70 or 80 yards away. So, you know, when you're when you're in thick stuff, they're probably going to sound farther away than what they are. If you're out in the open, I've had times where a bull's bugling and I'm glassing a wide open hillside 400 yards away going, he's got to be on that hillside somewhere. And then I happen to look on the next hillside that's 800 yards away and, and he's on that hillside. So in really open country, the bugle's going to carry farther. In thicker country, it's going to not carry as far. So for us in the windy conditions there, we knew it had come somewhere from either behind us or to our right. Uh, it hadn't come from down in the bottom or to our left. And so it kind of narrowed down. He's got to be somewhere on that hill, somewhere just on the backside of that ridge or somewhere up on the backside of the saddle. Since we'd already come through the saddle and the thermals were going up, the chances of him not smelling us were pretty low if he had been up there. So we kind of just said, he's got to be somewhere on that hillside with the way the wind's blowing for us to be able to hear him. He's probably uh, within visual, you know, he's on a hillside we can see. So it helped us kind of narrow down, but we didn't know if he was 10 yards into the timber or 300 yards into the timber. We just knew he's probably over on that timbered hillside. Middle of the day, it's north facing. There was a bench there. It was just a prime place for an elk to be bedded down. And then so you're obviously, what's the wind doing and what's your ideal setup? perfectly side hill to them above them below them yeah i mean in a perfect world situation the thermals are either going to be going up the hill or down the hill you know first thing in the morning they're going down middle of the day they're going up and then in the evening when it cools down again thermals are going down and so if they're going straight down or straight up a hillside i do like to get on the same level uh, and move in kind of perpendicular to that thermal and there's several reasons for that. In this situation, the wind was everywhere out on that open hillside. And I'd hoped when we got up into the timber, it would, you know, we wouldn't get as much of the swirling wind. We'd get more of a, a directional thermal. And that was the case, you know, as we got to the, the timber and just inside the timber, the thermals were coming up. So the bull, you know, when he did actually bugle the second time, we we're able to pinpoint, okay, he's straight across the draw from us. We're good. We're slightly above him, but he should feel comfortable to come right across the draw through this timber. He doesn't have to climb a bunch. Um, the only wild card was Donnie and John moved into the timber to set up, and I stayed out on the open ridge to call, uh, hoping I'd be able to pull that bull farther into the timber. If I'd have dropped into the timber, he may have sat over there and said, Hey, you've already come into the timber a ways. Why don't you come the rest of the way? I'm not, not comfortable coming across. So my thought was stay out on the open hillside. He's not able to see, you know, I'm at the edge of the timber there, but 
that uh, that would give me the most pull to try to pull him through the timber and into a shooting lane. The bad part was out on that open hillside, the wind was still swirling all over and I didn't didn't think far enough ahead to think through all the options the bull had and where he might come out. Yeah, I was, you know, skipping ahead a little bit, but I did one of the things in the video I just got a kick out of was, you know, you mentioned like, hey, we'll be fine as long as this bull doesn't kind of come below us. And then a little <laughs> bit later, and the bull appeared below us. <laughs> uh, and, and it's still a mystery to me how he didn't wind us with the wind swirling like it was. Uh, I think John said something to Donnie, you know, he's coming below us or something. Um, and the wind is going, you know, I checked the wind, it's going straight down at that point. But with it swirling, it must have just swirled right out of in front of him and, and he didn't smell it. But he did rather than coming through the thick trees and there was quite a bit of blowdown in there. So it makes sense from, a, you know, what's the easiest route to take that he would drop down below, hit the open hillside and then come up the open hillside. Uh, but I mean, a, a more mature bull, I think probably would have come through the timber rather than going down on the open hillside just to protect himself a little more. But this bull was younger. He, uh, he hadn't probably been shot at yet or, or learned the lesson of, Hey, don't just walk out in the open and expose yourself. But he did. And, uh, he actually got on the same hillside that we had been on when we located him. And so as we hiked up the hill, you know, we're, we're leaving scent on the hillside walking there. And he walked right across our tracks. Uh, I think the swirling wind helped that. Uh, and then, you know, with our scent kind of going all over there, it must've just swirled enough that he made it into the saddle that we had come through. Uh, and he probably couldn't hear exactly where we were either with the wind blowing like it was. So he didn't have us pinpointed. He fortunately didn't smell us, but now he's standing out in the wide open i'm in the wide open and donnie and john are actually behind me and down in the timber and i've got the bull bugling you know out in the open with them uh being too far away and and not even at that point until that point they didn't even know the bull was out there in the open one thing that you know is mentioned in this video but i didn't quite see it because john's with donnie filming uh, you say in the wide open i mean you just purely right out there wide open i think after the shot you mentioned you were 20 or 25 yards from this bull but were you fully exposed were you able to like work into a shadow what did you do as the caller when you kind of realized like i'm kind of already pinned or about to be pinned and don't really have cover yeah i, I was wide open so we're on a, a a ridge that is literally there's no timber on it it's just a straight sagebrush and grass ridge it goes down into that saddle and then there's a finger ridge that turns down and goes into the main drainage and all of that is wide open there's a kind of a peninsula of timber that goes into the draw below us there and that's where the bull had been bedding but he came out of the timber onto that open finger ridge walked up it into the open saddle and i'm on the main ridge in the wide open and as he's coming up, you know, he's coming up the hill and I finally see him. And it's like, at that point, you don't call, you don't do anything that, you know, is going to allow him to pinpoint where you're at, especially if you're out in the open. And I was hoping he'd get to the saddle and maybe look down off the backside or something so I could slip into the timber. But as uh, luck would have it, he got close to the saddle and then turned and looked up our direction. So I didn't, I wasn't even able to kneel down or to sit down on the hillside. 
uh, it's, I'm just exposed standing there in the wide open. And of course, every time I would try to take a step, he would turn and look up there. And so I'd, you know, have to freeze on one foot. And I remember after, after it was all done, when Donnie came walking up there, my legs were asleep, even though I was standing or I was hunkered down there, uh, my legs were asleep just from being tensed up and not being able to to move at all. So when that happens, you can't move. Those elk are going to pick up on every movement. Uh, when I would start to call, I had to wait for him to turn his head and I'd give a really quick cow call and point it down towards the timber, trying to pull him back down, you know, where he came from or back down uh, at least into the timber and not let him know I'm right out in the wide open. And again, if it was crystal clear and there was no wind, he's going to pinpoint right where you are. But I would time my uh, my calls to when there was wind, when he would have his head turned just to keep his attention and have him say, okay, I hear it, but I still don't know exactly where it's at. Cause once he figures out where it's at, uh, and he did, he locked on me a couple times and that's when he started getting nervous. He's like, I, you know, I'm not seeing an elk, uh, that, that blob there is staying pretty still, but, uh, just something's not right here. And so he did start getting nervous and actually turned and started walking uh, back down the way he had come from. How far had he traveled from where you thought he was bedded to where the setup was? Uh, he probably came, he was probably bedded 200 to 250 yards away from where we were when we first called to him. And so by the time we moved into the timber there, we're probably 180 yards from his bedding area and he had to come probably a hundred yards from his bedding area into the draw to be able to pop up on that open hillside below us. So he came a hundred yards and then probably came another hundred up the hill in the open. And he was, when he first got there, he was probably 50 yards from me when he was in the saddle and he was probably 70 yards from Donnie and John who were below me and to my right. Uh, slightly behind me a little bit. Uh, so they they weren't in a good setup. They had no shot. There was no chance of getting a shot where they were versus, you know, compared to where I was and where the bull was. You can see in some of the footage, you know, John's kind of focused on the elk and what you mentioned before about he kind of pinpointed you, he's getting a little nervous and you can begin to see his body language and him really trying to scent check and stuff like that. I didn't get a necessarily a full picture for what did Donnie get lucky and catch a shooting window or did he have to like read that body language, the situation, know that the time is kind of expiring for this opportunity and make a move to actually create a shot opportunity. Yeah, he totally had to make a move. So they're set up anticipating the elk's going to come below them or to them, but not so far below them that it's out in the open. And I think at one point they heard him, you know, heard brush breaking down below him. And John said, uh, he's coming below us or something. And so Donnie kind of repositioned there, but didn't move yet. And then as soon as the bull came out in the open, he bugled. And when he bugled, before I could even see him, uh, we have a, a, a calling sequence we do that alerts each other that, hey, it's time to move or come to me immediately. And that's just three really quick, uh, almost hyper cow calls, just a meow, meow, meow. And that means, hey, something something's going on. It isn't just me calling to the elk. I'm trying to get you know my partner's attention. And so... 
when I did that, uh, that's when Donnie turned and came up through the timber, moving up towards me and the bull bugled again. And that's when John saw him through the trees and he's like, he's right out there in the wide open. Uh, from there, they had to be careful, but Donnie moved another probably 15, maybe 20 yards through the timber, trying to get as close to the edge of the timber as he could. And about that time, you know, the bulls get nervous and Donnie did have a, a shooting window there being left-handed. I think John's on his right side, so you don't see the windows as well as what Donnie had, but he had a window and when the bull turned and started leaving, uh, he stopped in that window and, and gave him a shot. I was going to ask that question earlier that about, do you have any um, ways to communicate with your shooter while you're calling, you know, anything more elaborate than I, I've done for years, that three cow calls just mean like it's over, come back to me, you know? Uh, but I've always thought it'd be cool. You could do something like, you know, Hey, move to your left 50 <laughs> yards and that's four cow calls, right? Like Something more in depth. Cause there's certainly times it's just, you know, you're the shooter and, or the caller is seeing something completely different and to be able to communicate sure would be handy. Totally. Yeah. You could probably do Morse code or something with some cow calls, but it <laughs> <laughs> might get a little, little elaborate. So yeah, we're the same, just three cow calls. And it's just, uh, it, it means something's going on, you know, either you come to me, if I'm the caller, like in this case, and I give three cow calls, um, Donnie's going to come regroup with me typically where they knew the bull had swung around below him and was probably coming up into the open. Um, he wasn't coming straight for me, but they knew they had to get to the edge of the timber to, to be in the setup. If I'm the shooter sometimes, and if I've gotten close to the bull and Donnie's back behind calling, and then I see the bull turn and go up the ridge and over the top, you know, I'll give Donnie three cow calls as the shooter to get him up to my location and be like, hey, we've got to move up to the ridge and drop over. So it's basically a, a, a come here and regroup communication. Throughout this whole video, there was so many, it's very helpful. I really want people to go watch it. And there's so many things that I was like taking away, processing, had questions about, etc. One thing I loved though, Corey, is that even for you at the end of this, like you even talked about, hey, here's kind of what I learned or what I would do differently, which one is just encouraging to know that Corey Jacobson is still learning things. Um, it's it's but, still learning them the hard way. I'll, I'll yeah. mention, you know. By making mistakes and that's just no matter how time how many times you've done it um you know unless you're a robot you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes and so it's good to have those reminders um what what i came away with on this was just there could have been another bull that came in from up the ridge from us there could have you know a lot of different things that it's just not wise to set up to call out in the wide open you just really limit that that setup and you, you kind of hamper your your hunting partner's ability to take advantage of whatever opportunity comes out of that setup. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like for you, just the I wanted to rehash, like what was the biggest takeaway? And um, I think obviously you mentioned the video, but that's a good summary of just knowing like it's just amazing to me. The setup is so important. You need to talk about all the calls and the different types of calls, but you make right calls, but have, just have the wrong setup and things just don't go the way you want them to go. Absolutely. And I think that's what's cool about all of these episodes is we could talk about 
calling tactics in everyone. We could talk about the setup in everyone. We could talk about the thermals in everyone, you know, but they're all different. And there's a, there's probably a one element that makes the biggest difference. And in this one, you know, it was the setup. That was our weakness was our setup. Uh, and not necessarily the setup of the shooter, not necessarily the setup of the collar, but that combination of me being in the open and the shooter in the timber. Uh, if the, the shooter had been set up on the edge of the opening and I had been pulled back into the timber, a lot of times that'll work. But that combination was was definitely our weakness. Uh, one of the, you know, the other lessons we could have talked about is, is the shooter. Don't be afraid to move if you need to move. If the bull's not coming into your lane, you're not going to get a shot. So what do you have to lose at that point? You might as well readjust and try to get to a point where you can get a shot. And in situations like that, where we had all that timber and all that cover, it did allow Donnie to, to be able to move. And like I said, my calling was limited, but I did every, every chance I had to call without giving away my location completely to that bull. I, I was doing that just to try to keep his attention. I didn't want him to come to me. You know, I wasn't trying to call him up to me because I'm in the wide open and it wouldn't help Donnie, but I was just trying to hold him there keep his attention long enough knowing that Donnie was on the move and would hopefully be able to cover enough distance to, to get into a position to get a shot. Can you give us a sneak peek at kind of, uh, the episode that's releasing tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, the title of it is something like, uh, throw away your calls or throw your calls away or leave your calls <laughs> at home or something. So, uh, you know me, and and if there's any chance of calling, I'm going to be calling. But it's important to recognize when calls might not be working. You know, whether it's because you aren't getting any answers, or whether it's because there's a big herd bull with cows, and he's so focused on breeding that you aren't going to pull him off of a hot cow. Um, it's important to recognize that and and to be able to adapt. And uh, for those that saw cameraman John shoot his biggest bull uh, in Destination Elk. We uh, we recap the entire day in tomorrow's episode. Cool. Well, I'm excited to check it out. Um, thanks for hopping on and letting us kind of chat through this one again with you. And again, for all the listeners, there'll be links in the show description to uh, this first episode that we broke down today and then the channel to check out the new episode that's coming tomorrow. And then I guess uh, just have people hit subscribe on that YouTube channel, right, Corey? And then they'll get the rest of the episodes all summer. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, the Elk 101 YouTube channel. That's where all these are being posted. Uh, we've got a bunch of other content there as well. But when you hit subscribe, make sure you click that little bell because that's what sends you the notification. And uh, then you get notified every time we drop a, a new video and you're able to jump on and watch it. And you aren't surprised when you... You know, you aren't surprised to find out there's a new video when you're listening to a, a podcast telling you about it. You'll uh, you'll know <laughs> when the next one comes. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for the time, Corey. Hey, thanks so much, guys.